everyone. My name is Melody Jones-Pointed. And I'm the Reverend Thomas Dobermuth. And we are excited to walk the Sunrise Road together today. The Sunrise Road podcast is a podcast with conversations that connect and weave hope into the fabric of our shared lives. Thank you for joining us. And here's this week's conversation. Our guest this week is one of my favorite people in the entire world. So many good memories and so much good friendship over the past 20 years. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, so uh, Matt Martis LaCroix is one of my friends from seminary. We met like in the early, early days of seminary. And so um, Martis and I have walked through our entire seminary career together, getting our first called and installed positions together. Martis lived for many years here in the Midwest, and we did not take proper advantage of that. But during the pandemic, he and his wife, who also happens to be a, a Presbyterian pastor, moved to New Jersey. It's like the border of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So one is serving at a church in Pennsylvania, and one is in New Jersey. Is that right? Yes. Mary Beth in New Jersey, me in Pennsylvania. That's very appropriate. Very appropriate because you are originally from Pennsylvania. And so, and you're actually a clergy in the United Church of Christ, but you're one of our beloved brothers who is doing some time in the PCUSA. So thanks. Feels for like service. coming home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad. So we get to um, skip over the predestination jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we, I, we were thinking, um, about, uh, what it means to do evangelism in the world today. And a lot has changed since, um, COVID and, um, and I don't want to overplay that, but I also don't want to underplay that. So what we've invited Martis to have a conversation with, uh, Thomas and me about evangelism, what it means to share our faith today and how we might go about sharing our faith. So there's nothing like putting you on the spot right away. Do you have, either of you, both of you, a one sentence definition of evangelism? Hmm. And I would ask that of all three of us. <laughs> a one sentence. Yeah. Some, I posted this in a Facebook group and somebody like gave me a 20 sentence like quote from Eugene Peterson that was awesome and wonderful. And I want to affirm whoever posted that. But mm -hmm. one sentence. If I do, it's not terribly original. Um, I think it would be something like evangelism is sharing the good news of what God in Christ is doing for me through my local church, period. One long sentence. I should have written that down. So sharing the good news, because we're going to have to define a lot of these things. Sure. Sharing the good news of About what God. What God in Christ. In Christ. Is doing for me. through my local church. That is that sorry a lot packed in there. Yeah, it's it a is. it's a it's a good it's a long sentence. I I don't think I can do that. I melody. I I <laughs> I um I mean, yes, I can say sharing the good news in some way, but um 
I mostly have questions uh, immediately, uh, like like. Um, I keep thinking about that Robbie Williams song. I, I, I try to remember which it was, and it has has that line in it. Uh, what was so great about the Great Depression? Um, <laughs> and and uh, when evangelizing evangelization is the sharing of the good news the immediate question is what is so good about the good news right and that's where a lot of my baggage come in and i think that's also why we have this conversation here because i think there's so much so not obvious to evangelization in comparison to the the way i as an evangelical young christian grew up with thinking about evangelization because the good news that I felt like I had to share back in the day uh, was terrible news for many people. Yes. And 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 um and to me, I don't know if I if a one uh, sentence description, but I have a one sentence um, test of practice. I think it's not good news until it's good news for all. Ooh. Uh, and 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 that that to me is kind of like a disclaimer um, when we talk about proclaiming good news or sharing good news that is just always in the back of my mind and it's also my hardest critique <laughs> and the, the hardest critic as well if whenever i open my mouth um yeah we have similar backgrounds you and i i think because mm. i was also raised in an evangelical milieu where whatever evangelism was it was about telling people uh if you're not like me, there will be eternal consequences for that. So why don't you come and be like me? And mm -hmm. I also do not want any part of that. Now, that's very foreign to the way that I would think about this now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then the question is, what is the good news? my definition deliberately has some some slippage there i think i do have an agenda here and how i'm thinking about evangelism because we can talk in theologically correct abstractions god in christ is reconciling the world to god's self right but that's so abstract that i don't find it very helpful to my way of thinking Part of evangelism is church people becoming um, articulate about what God is doing for me, personally, specifically, me, and being able to say, here is what God is doing for me through my local church. Uh, whether that is, um, you know, I struggle with addiction and the church is the place where I have found people who help me heal from that. Or it is really hard to raise children in this crazy 21st century world and the church is my village that surrounds me. Or I would be without community and lonely were it not for this place where I can connect. And when I think about it that way, I'm imagining that different people are going to have different answers. And part of my work as a pastor and equipping the saints is to help people see and speak about, you know, what is God doing for you here? 
Mm. I like that. I like I like that um <laughs> that that breaking down really on 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 the anchor point. It's like that you you have to learn to say I and you kind of admit with that that you're not going to speak for everyone else. Yes. Um, that yeah, is yeah. um that that's so crucial because um otherwise you are trying to put whatever good news you think is on someone else and then it, this doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily good news anymore yeah you're getting you're sort of verging on one of my very favorite topics um <laughs> a thinker who's really important to me uh is anna carter florence i did my doctor of ministry thesis on her work on preaching and when i defended my thesis the main criticism that I received was that this is not so much um, a work of academic criticism as a gushing fanboy love letter to Anna Carter Florence. <laughs> I said, yeah, pretty much. You're right. Um, but one of the things that, uh, that she has taught me that I try to hold on to is that different people's experiences are different. Mm -hmm. um, and she's made me think a lot about how that informs preaching, but it also informs evangelism meaning that it's not for me to tell you here's here's the good news for you because there's something patronizing about that right i'm putting myself in a position like i know what's best for you i think my role is to help you articulate what's good news for you because your experience is not my experience and i want to i want to honor that and hold space for that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it it presupposes that um that god is good and yes. uh um and all that's what you said like the theological abstract that um that god that god loves me and so and god loves everyone else even those i don't <laughs> yeah i think that's very true yeah yeah, yeah. another aspect of, of my definition that I wanted to make sure I put on the table, kind of highlight, um, is the notion that whatever, if we're going to talk about evangelism for mainline Protestant churches in 2023, I think we have to decouple it from results. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I mean by that evangelism is not church growth in other words uh and so often when we talk about evangelism we very quickly veer into strategies for getting people into the pews increasing your numbers increasing your worship attendance and the truth is we're facing such severe cultural and demographic headwinds that there's just no guaranteed way anymore. There's no formula or five point plan that is guaranteed to generate more people in your church today than were there a year ago. A lot of churches lost ground during COVID, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I talk about evangelism, I wanna be really clear. I am not talking about how to get people in your church. Uh, that to me, that can be an important and interesting conversation, but I don't think that evangelism should be results driven. I think it's about 
encouraging and equipping people to speak their truth about the good God is doing for them. Mm. I do think that we try to boil evangelism down to results. And I mean, and that's how I was trained. I don't know if either of you remember the stunning book. I believe it it was by Bill Hybels. And if it wasn't, then I'll have to come back and correct that called Becoming a Contagious Christian yes, that yeah. actually had, is that who it was by, Martis? Was I, Bill Hybels? It, it, it sounds right, this? but I want to. Yeah, and like in it, there is actually a formula for how to increase participation in the church because of what you are sharing with people. And, and so oh. it like lays out a formula. And I think Thomas and I have talked about this before about like what, what happens when we reduce our faith down to a formula, because all three of us have different formulas, right. you know, I mean, like there's, so, so what, what is the point of evangelism, I guess would be the next, you know, if, if it's not results oriented and, and I had shared with Martis a little bit, um, previously the history of us here at Eastridge Presbyterian Church, which is a beautiful history. And I love and want to embrace this history um, because it is the story that many churches of the 1950s and 60s could tell, where we were a mission church on the edge of town. We started in a field in a neighborhood that was being built by the Strauss brothers, and they donated land to five different um, worshiping communities. And the first pastor here literally built the church by, he would watch in the neighborhood and see when people were moving in to their houses. And he would, like, people still have these stories. He would go over and he would greet them. He might even help them move in and carry stuff in. And by the end of dinner, he would have a commitment from them to see them on Sunday. And on Sunday, he would have a commitment and a place for them to be in the choir on a de- deacon session, mm-hmm. you know, so a Sunday school teacher, some way involved, but there were no houses here, you know? So it was like, you could, see, you could do that because you could see the house crop up. Well, part of our story here at Eastridge is that in the early 2000s, we um, studied a book and I think it was called when, when not to build or something like that. And it was all about like, do we want to remain in this community that is now established in our neighborhood? Or do we want to move to the edge of town or to an area where it is growing? And and we, this church, decided not to do that. So we claim very strongly that we are a neighborhood church. So our ideas of evangelism and the history of evangelism and how the church is going to grow, I think just don't work, especially post COVID. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's so much sort of two thoughts as you share that first to go back to Bill Hybels. I want to make too big a deal about this, but what we didn't know when uh, we were reading that book, we know now is that Bill Hybels is kind of a creepy dude, right? It turns out that there were some integrity issues. And I do not think that that is coincidental or accidental. I think that contagious Christian book operated out of a theology that sees other people as objects for me to manipulate into my church, right? I've got a formula and I'm going to massage you and work you just so, so that you become a member. There's something, 
his lack of personal integrity should make us at least a little suspicious of the writing and thinking that he produced. That's that's one thing. But the second is that I, I think the story of Eastridge underscores the challenge that so many of our mainline congregations face, is that our high water mark was largely about demographics, right? When you look at mainline Protestant churches like my United Church of Christ, like the PCUSA and the others in that family, all exploded during the post-war baby boom. And I haven't looked up for the PCUSA, but I think for the United Church of Christ, the high watermark of membership was the year 1960. And it was all downhill from there. So if you were starting a church or expanding it, that was a time when you could just hang a shingle on the door that said church and open the door and get out of the way and people would come rushing in. And so we look back at that as our glory days. And the truth is we didn't have to exert a lot of effort to bring those people in. They just, they just came because it was 1960 and that was what you do. We're in a very different climate now that calls for different approaches. And if I knew what that was, you know, I could write a book and, go out on the lecture circuit but and I have live off the book, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could re republish it with a slightly different title every other <laughs> year. <Yeah. laughs> right right yeah that's that's it's a really really good point um yeah it, it, for, for me along the same vein is like what what worked back then with going door to door and and um asking for commitment apparently that um you you found an open door there uh in that wow. time that was the kairos for that i guess or whatever you want to call that um and to me or maybe that's also personality uh i would be really repulsed by that <laughs> happening to me today i was like what does this dude want from me and ooh he's really pushy or uh, <laughs> or he is very oily or i mean all all those kind of things that we've had of in the meantime of experiencing 70 years of marketing since and and kind of uh this developed our senses and um to to respond to this constant bombardment of people who are trying to sell me something um and um so if i take me as a sample <laughs> yeah and, uh that that is that is really something that that does not work um what so i mean i'm trying to think what what does work for me is if if someone is not trying too hard, <laughs> um, ha has me want that uh, and comes across as authentic, real, um, not too polished, um, and yeah, it doesn't seem to have the magic formula because I don't be believe in that either. Yeah. So let's yeah. just say that in the 1950s and 60s, there was nothing on the news like I saw this morning was on every channel about the new spam, <laughs> you know, all of the many ways to be spammed and mm. how to filter out those people who are out to scam you, including the people who come to your door who are checking out like in Home Alone. <laughs> 
1990s movie, Home Alone, the people who are coming to your door in order to see, like, and I totally, I totally live that. Like, I'm super suspicious of people who come to my door. I never let them in the house. If, you know, like, and, and I think that that is just a change in climate and our expectation is that first, I want to know that it's a person and not a bot. <laughs> and I don't always know how to tell the difference. And my phone doesn't always know how to tell the difference. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> I, when we moved um, from Iowa to New Jersey, you know, we, we kept our cell phone numbers. Mm. And when we first got here, <laughs> our kids' schools had blocked all co all calls from the uh des moines area code because so much spam comes from there we weren't able to communicate with our kids schools i mean it's a we had to get to the bottom of that and clear that up but it goes to show you i think you're both right that people are a deep cynicism about attempts to market and manipulate is a survival skill in this day and age like you cannot navigate the modern world unless you have a kind of hard-boiled cynicism about people who are trying to offer you something and so while my definition of evangelism isn't intended to be results oriented it is also the case that the only thing that's going to connect with people is authenticity and so we have to help people speak authentically about what God is doing for them rather than train them to regurgitate a formula. Do you think that has to happen in person? And here's sort of why I'm asking this question. So this whole journey that we're on sort of started with um, conversations that Thomas and I were having and that Thomas was having with other clergy about, you know, a post-Easter sort of, you know, what we want to explore post-Easter. And I thought, well, let's explore the world on our doorstep and how we used to do evangelism by going door to door, the story of how Eastridge was built, you know, um, and, and the church that I served in Michigan built much the same way. Um, and, and, and what does mission mean now? So, you know, it used to, it, it just used to look, it just used to look different. And I want to know, practically mm. what what this looks like um today but as we're sharing and talking about this i'm thinking what about all of those posts on social media and on facebook that are coming you know like what what is the line of when i take a picture and we're super into kate bowler around here uh, as you sure. well know matt well our, it was our 20th and our 20th uh reunion from seminary yeah. last year and Kate Bowler was the speaker and I got COVIDed out. Um, so mm -hmm. I didn't make it, but fabulous. Don't tell, just tell me she was horrible. I didn't miss anything. <laughs> very, you, know, you, you missed it. was very bad. Very bad. And questionable <laughs> personal hygiene. Just not you're you ducked a bullet there. Really? The truth is she's, she's fabulous in pointing out that the life we po portray on, on social media is not actually lived by anybody. So I know for a fact that I don't post a lot, but my husband, Steve posts things and, and we, we look like we're doing pretty awesome, but what nobody else sees is that when we all first got on this morning, I, 
I will speak only for myself and said, I, I feel like I live in, in depletion. Yeah. You know, like I, I feel like I'm always running behind and like the days are dragging on and there's a lot of mornings. I share that the only reason I get out of bed is initially because I just am looking forward to a cup of coffee and some quiet, you know, like, like those things are not the things that get shared on Facebook. So if we're presenting our faith in such a way, that's like, look at how amazing my church is. Mm-hmm. What does that, is that no church is really like that, right? Like every church is having some of the same hiccups that we're having here, like running out of bulletins on a Sunday. Right. Yes. You're, uh, I'm, I'm very guilty of the, the curated social media experience, like using Facebook and Instagram to present a vision of my life that is much my children are always cute and always photogenic and always saying and doing adorable things. Right. They are. And you're, they're also not. Um, and is this also something that people are becoming wise to, or even cynical about, mm-hmm. right? Th- that's less clear to me, but I could have met you, you sort of asked at the beginning of that, does the connection for evangelism need to be face to face as, as opposed, I think that there's a lot, you're a lot likelier to experience authenticity uh, in the face to face and social media can be a tool to get you to the face to face part. But if we want honesty and a a sense of verisimilitude, um, you're, you're going to get that in face to face encounter and not in pixels. I want to ask forgiveness for my um, my reference to your most recent social media post where you actually did run out of bullets. I like running I out of bullets. And I loved the way you reframed than- it. It's like when people say there's no there's nowhere to park in the parking lot, I say, praise be to God, there's nowhere to park in our parking lot. Do you know how far I had to walk? I'm so glad you're here today. <laughs> I'm so glad problem you, you walked it. Like, it's such a great... Um, but, but there are... And 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 only so social media is a great way to reframe some of that stuff and to share the story of what's happening. I just yeah, wanted sure. to point out that that there are you know hiccups that we're all you know there's no church right now that's in my understanding of what's happening. No matter what you see on social media, there is no church right now that is just flat out killing it. <laughs> just that's right. That's right. Yeah, and yet that ideal of being polished or exceptionally good at what you're doing um that's a narrative that's that's deep in us both individually and, and as churches and it, it it messes with that other part I, I realize we are really actually mostly talking about church growth and not about evangelism because that's that's where the conversation pulls us because probably that's what rubs us um that that connection is not working the way our forefathers i say intentionally that way uh <laughs> started us off and and um yeah and, and we participate in it as well as, as churches. That's what I'm, tr- I'm trying to say. Is like when you said before that the cynicism that is necessary as a response, 
I remember like in, in March 2020, everyone says, hey, can you imagine Facebook and it's free and you can stream and it have so many more people watching it. And we participate to to online noise that huh. then um, makes people having to filter out more. Um, there's um, that is kind of frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> Does that require a way of thinking about church that I agree we were, I guess, because it's March, I'm thinking a lot about COVID and about that, that horrible pivot that we all had to make, but there was something a little giddy about those early days for those of us, there were congregations who had been doing online worship for a long time. Uh, I wasn't serving one of them. And so to have to all of a sudden make this pivot to online video and like, oh, hey, look at all these likes, look at all these eyeballs. And there was something, uh, it felt self-justifying because of the, the giddiness and the excitement. And having an opportunity now to take a step back and say, how do we make sure that that aspect of church life doesn't take over but sort of is in its proper place because we are about authentic human connection and my sense is that that's more likely to happen face to face than on online platforms and spaces i i like that reframing to connection and i, I can come back to that word uh, over and over again uh, because my, my in, in, instant reaction was like well Oh, we want that we make an impact and you get those likes and the eyes so you you're doing something that feedback loop there but more than impact it's really the connection and that um requires more eye level and that is uh that's also uh, much smaller um we, we're getting back melody we're getting back to your friends three feet around us uh in, in a way right and there are yeah. not that many people who fit in there um, um as we as we wish to, as influencers, right? <laughs> yeah. Do you know about this, Martis? Um, you you know about it because you were there for this sermon. And I'm spacing on his name because I have brain fog. It's um, we went to school with him. His name is Greg. Greg Ellison. Ellison. Okay. And he oh, preached yeah. his sermon, and he was talking. Do you remember this? I was sitting next to you in the chapel, and I remember clearly it was like his senior. <clears throat> Um, the, remember at the end of seminary, they did those like sermons every day. And like Jonathan Walton was one, yeah, Greg yeah, Ellison yeah. was one. And, um, it wasn't yeah. the regular chapel service. It was like highlighting, I think maybe Alex did one anyway. Um, and Greg Ellison preached about what it was like to be at his grandmother's table, eating her good food. And this conversation that he would have with her all the time about saying, you know, I, um, how do, how do you change the world? And, you know, there's so many things happening. And she would say, like, it's it's about the three feet in front of you. <laughs> like, and and did you know there's a song by Carrie Newcomer that, like, he's worked with Parker Palmer and all this, you know. So we talk a lot about the three feet um, in, in yeah. front of us. Okay. <clears throat> that's, okay, so that's interesting because part of the problem, part of what was giddy about the pivot to, online in covid was every single church's reach became theoretically global mm -hmm. right if i'm putting my worship on 
Facebook or some kind of live stream, then people from halfway around the world might find. And I know, I think most churches, I'm sure Eastridge uh, has this, have people who found the church from a distance mm -hmm. and are participating in its online life despite living out of state or maybe out of country or, you know, and they, we could, <laughs> so we're in Lent and we just heard back in first Lent, the story of the, the temptation of Jesus. <laughs> the tempter comes in the wilderness and says, well, you can do this, you can do that. Uh, your church could have global reach. You could be, and what a, what a great distraction from the three feet in front of us, right? To go chasing after that, or to think that that confers some kind of validation when uh, it's what's right in front of me that is where God is most likely to be found and where there is most likely good work for me to do. So in all of this, the thing I keep thinking is, and I might get, I might lose my Presbyterian card and get kicked out. Oh my but goodness. We won't know. I wonder if at the core of evangelism and what I really struggle with is caring whether or not other people are Christian. Ooh. And the tone of evangelism to convert somebody, to bring them into a community that I find value while respecting oh. who they are. And I haven't figured out if someone is connected spiritually, but not through what I know to be God in Jesus Christ, do I care? And I think that really, like it's that idea and you know, and Queen Elizabeth just the second just died. And we talked to, you know, we're, we can talk about the end of colonialism and the end of like trying to go out and, and, you know, make Christians of all yes. nations. And so like, yes. if we, if, if I'm not out there saying, this is, this is God, this is what I know to be God in Jesus Christ. And you should believe in this God too, because this God that I worship is not like the God you hear most often in the media about Christians. Like that's just, you know, I love, is it Diana Butler Bass and Trip Fuller who have started talking about many Christianities? You know, there's many, there's, there's not just one Christian truth. There's, you know, there's many different ways that many of us are living this out. And, and there always has been, we just haven't always heard those stories. So, you know, but do we really, can I ask that? Do we really care if people are Christian? <laughs> Did I just get kicked out? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, the instant reaction we need to say is reiterate what what what, what you just said, Matt, earlier was the disconnection from evangelism from church growth. Yes. That is, uh, we, we just need to say that again, and then uh, that may be even your most, most faithful expression of your faith, mm. that uh, the other does not need to become you in your faith. Yes. So I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that, yeah. 
is exact. First of all, I think that there's more grounding in the reform tradition for this perspective. I mean, even classically, then you might, you can check me on this, <laughs> but I think it's the second Helvetic confession that says, we know that God hath some friends outside the commonwealth of Israel. Like at, at its best, at its greatest integrity, the reform tradition understood very early on uh, that God gets around, right? And that God relates and connects to people in ways that we don't necessarily see or understand. Uh, but then to, to Thomas's point, I think the way a lot of evangelism was classically understood was about a coping mechanism for uh, dealing with difference. If, if I am nurtured in the church and, and, and brought up in the faith, and then at some point I discover that there are people who do not share my faith, my perspective, do not pray to my God, this is upsetting to me. This threatens my worldview. And one way I can cope with the anxiety is to try to go and make those people like my people. That will reduce the dissonance. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, colonialist mission project that got so big in sort of the late 19th, early 20th century, where we're going to spread Christianity and democracy and the American way of life so that those heathen are like us and we don't have to be disturbed by the fact that they're different anymore. Uh, so for me, that then comes back to Anna Carter Florence, that uh, difference is sacred. Mm -hmm. Difference is a gift. And if someone is not like me, uh, the, the appropriate response to that difference is not to try to absorb it convert it, but rather to be curious about it, mm -hmm. to approach with humility and listen for the places in which that different experience overlaps with my own. I can get very excited about that. But I, I, I think this is, this is really, I think this is spot on. Um, and the anxiety uh, of dealing with with difference, I, I do want to add an anxiety since I uh, like to read Kierkegaard. Um, <laughs> is is the other uh, anxiety I sense within um, myself, fellow church people, is that if we don't make other like me, <laughs> if we if if we don't learn to speak it our our faith in a way that is kind of expansive we we disappear hmm. or our faith may evaporate or our church community uh, and that's how it connects oh, again with the church growth thing is like um the 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 um if we don't articulate our faith in these forms what what then is left um of my faith what's left in our faith communities um yeah <laughs> Does that make sense? I think it does to me. You're you're talking about kind of the correct me if I'm wrong. The sense if my church is growing, if we're we're bringing people in, we're making people more like us. There is validation in that. There's something I can look at and say, yes, we're. All, it's kind of like um, 
McDonald's saying billions and billions served. It becomes a rationale for it. doesn't matter that the hamburgers are garbage. If you've sold enough of them, it becomes its own rationale, its own justification. People like us, we must be okay. Um, and if that's what we're talking about, uh, the only basis for hope, the only basis for faith that I'm authorized to have is that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's it. And so if I am putting my faith in, oh, my church is growing, oh, people are happy, oh, the budget's in the black, that is something, that's actually a pagan way of thinking about church. Um, if we follow the one who raises the crucified, then it stands to reason that we will not always or even often have visible, tangible, material signs of victory and success. It's, it's church under the sign of the cross. Agreed. You're mute, Melody. Muted. Um, sounds very Lutheran. <laughs> Sounds like Luther there living in under, under the cross, but but um, I think that I've really appreciated this discussion, and I don't know that I have any more answers about evangelism, <laughs> but I think that as a pastor, what I really appreciate and that I would love to embrace is um, the important, and we've talked a lot about this, so this is not new since the pandemic. I think it is so important for us to be sharing our story of where we are finding God. And that's why in Marta's, this definition you gave us in the beginning, that God is doing for me. And I have to say that I am not always aware enough of my surroundings or aware enough of my own soul or aware enough of you know my life to be able to identify that. And so it is so helpful to be able to share that story with others who can help point to what God is doing. And I'm gonna I'm gonna credit the United Church of Christ and their wonderful ad campaign sure. from 20 years ago, God is still speaking, which even after seminary, when we were first starting out in ministry, I didn't feel like that. I didn't feel like God, I didn't feel like the church was attending to where God is still speaking. I think the anxiety that I see in me and in good, faithful people who are, you know, participating in the life of churches everywhere is a fear that they're not going to know my favorite hymn. They're not going to know my favorite song. Will they understand how meaningful communion is when it's shared in this way that I find meaning in it? And I think sometimes that comes out in anxiety of like, well, we don't, that's not the way we do things. That's not the way, you know, that's not the way things are done. And so we we carry this anxiety of like, well, I have to make it this way that it used to be because nobody's going to know how important that was. And I think that one of the things that I would love for churches everywhere to embrace is that if people tell their story, yes. then that has more hope for the future that to be carried on than institutionalizing and saying, this is the way we do things. We have to do things this way. We have to sing this hymn. Like nobody's going to forget the words to Amazing Grace. 
Nobody's going to forget the words to how great thou art. Nobody, but they're not going to necessarily have a personal connection with them unless you share it. I mean, I remember clearly my, one of my professors from college, um, Jerry Sitzer, and he has this, you know, this story of like, he, he, he lost his wife, his daughter and his mother or mother-in-law in a tragic car accident. And one of his other children was injured and he was teaching at Whitworth, now university. And I remember being in class with him and him saying, be thou my vision is what we sang at my wedding at all of our children's baptisms and at their funerals. And then we sang it together and he cried and we cried. And every time we sing, be thou my vision to this day, I think of how important that hymn was to his life of faith. Or I remember him saying of the father's love begotten and us singing it together and talking about the history of that hymn and how it was handed on. And it's a Gregorian chant and all the, like, so when I sing it, I'm carrying in me his story because he shared his personal connection. So I wonder if evangelism is really just saying, do you know, (laughs) this is my connection. This is, this is what, this is how God is working whenever I sing this hymn or whenever I read this Bible verse, or when I do the right thing, that's a really hard thing, but I did the right thing because I remember when someone did the right thing for me. I remember when someone sat by me after my spouse died. I remember when someone sat with me when my child was sick. I remember when someone brought me food because I was having surgeries. I remember all of these things. And that's how God is still working in my life. And then sharing that, but not in a way that is, and you have to come to my church or you might be, I might not see you again. (laughs) that's That's not evangelism. That's not evangelism. To share it in a way that you're not attached to it. Uh, mm-hmm. and I, th- I think that's the trick, that this is deeply meaningful for me, and, and I honor you by sharing it, and you honor me by receiving it, but, that, but I don't require that it be binding for you, or that you, therefore we have to sing Be Thou My Vision, that's the middle hymn, every Sunday, forever, right? And that that balance um it's such a terrible cliche but it it makes a lot of sense that i'm finally in presbyterian circles uh because the work of carl bart has been so important to me uh there's a guy named gary dorian who is absolutely not a scholar of carl bart he is a scholar of the liberal theological tradition in the United States. Uh, But he wrote a book on Bart that has the best title. Uh, It's called, uh, I think it's called Theology Without Weapons, or it's something without Mm -hmm. weapons. But the idea that part of Bart's project was saying that the truth does not need to be defended or imposed or coerced, it requires no help from the forces of violence, be they literal or rhetorical. It, it can stand on its own. So truth in that sense 
is deeply vulnerable. The, the truth that we share about what God is doing for us does not go out into the world with any guarantee of being heard or received or meeting with success. It just, it just goes and is entirely entrusted to God. The other thing, Mel, that you got me thinking that my definition would benefit from underlining a little more is how important God's people are. I, I really can't share what God is doing for me. I can't see it entirely by myself. I need the rest of the community to help me to see it. They need me to see it in them. And when we name what we see in one another, that's part of how we're building up the body and being church together to carry other people's stories the way that you have with your professor. That's, I think that's the way it's supposed to work. You are so Presbyterian. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> Which I love. I want to give a few minutes. Um, this has been as fabulous. I, I've just been in a good mood since I, since I walked into my office this morning in anticipation of this fabulous discussion. And it's been as interesting for me as, as, um, and wonderful for, for me as I anticipated. And so I'm just thankful for both of you. Um, but I want to make sure that we have time for any last comments or any final words of, of wisdom. Speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Yeah. Let it be. Amen. Um, I do want to. I, I, I just want to underline that the the without weapons. I think that is, and that comes back to my initial um, knee jerk reaction to evangelism because I think sure. evangelism has been with weapons, not yes, a, a lot in history with weapons, uh, with physical weapons, but often also the subtle ones, and um, that is that's so good. That's great, and is that awesome that. Uh, a liberal theologian would write a book on Bart and here together is the great synthesis, which both would hate, right? Sure. So. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I do uh, want to thank you, Martis. And I, I want to um, go back and say that uh, I don't know of any church that's uh, killing it, but I do see a lot of good things about things you're doing in the great state of Pennsylvania. And I always love to hear you preach and you, you can be found on facebook um every every sunday and uh so i i will not hold it against anyone if they decide to check you out on a sunday morning uh from afar or during the week um i've i've really appreciated your friendship over the years and uh same for you thomas i 10 years so martis i've known you for 25 years yeah fall of 99 and thomas and i have been working together now for Ten years. So half of my career I have worked with Thomas Dummermuth, and it's just a privilege to call you both friends. So thank you. Really right great meeting you. you. Yep. Yeah. Good to finally connect. This was great. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's it. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, it really was as good as I thought it would be. The so only thing interesting. that will make this better would be actually around the table. Oh, I know, right? Well, you're yeah. gonna you're gonna you're gonna grow this thing and get a budget <laughs> for like bringing people out and being in person, right? I mean, that's 
just a matter of time. Yeah, there's there's that very ambivalent uh, growth impetus again. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's really our attempt at asynchronous church, but in all, um, so Vince, who used to be here every Sunday and doing our online worship stream has um, expressed more of an interest in um, sort of perfecting our podcast. And yeah. so um, he wants us to do more of them. So we may come back just for interesting conversations because you're always a great conversation partner. And oh, I've told Thomas know. this before, but seriously, I would not have graduated from seminary without relying on Martis's smartest-ness. And I wouldn't have wanted to go there if you hadn't been there. So. <laughs> yeah, that worked ah, out. There you go. <laughs> it was great. T tell MB and the kids... Hello. Well, and uh, yeah, I didn't see her play. Her she was in a play. She was in a perm. See, there was no. So that was good. No live stream. No internet. Uh, nothing. But it was a perm play that was a mashup of the story of Esther and uh, the the Broadway musical Wicked. And it was real. She was the only goy in the cast. They the rabbi had sent out like you know, we're having open auditions. Anybody should come. I sent it to her. She went. And she ended up being the only non-Jewish person who was cast. And it was a lot of fun. And she got to sing and act and just, she needs that outlet and hasn't had it, you know, so. She good. is rocking awesome and can sing and act and do all is of that. Wicked and Esther? Wicked and Esther, yeah. So they, they basically reworked some. Well, it's, what was, I think what would be controversial is that uh, it envisioned Haman and Mordecai as being more like frenemies and created a scene at the end of the show so that they could sing uh, Changed for Good, where Mordecai goes to Haman in his cell, like right before he's going to hang. And they like, you know, the hug, kiss and make up. I mean, it was sort of weird, but they had fun. So, with so that that really that that blows my mind even more. I, I, I thought maybe uh, Vashti rehabilitated. Yeah, but, no, no, right. You would yeah. think that. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wish it had been streamed or something. I heard a lot of church folk were saying the same thing. It was actually at the same time as my church's youth group. So, oh, well. <laughs> well, you you both are the best. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thank you. Yes. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sunrise Road Podcast. Our podcast is hosted by me, Thomas Dimmermood. And me, Melody Jones-Poynton. And it is edited by Vince Rule. The Sunrise Road Podcast is a ministry of Eastridge Presbyterian Church. Please like and subscribe. 